Now, uh, if you would turn with me or listen on as I read Romans chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. hear the word of God. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as 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 much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. And let us pray together. Father, we Thank you again for your word and acknowledge that uh, your word is uh, the power uh, unto salvation to the one who has faith. And uh, it's a it's a powerful reality in the life of the true Christian, Uh, but even to the Christian and certainly to the unbeliever. But uh, any man who has no faith, the word comes to him and the words just fall to the ground and does it does nothing. We pray the preaching wouldn't be like that, but that there would be real hearing with faith as a result of the work of the Spirit. As your word goes forth, we're praying, O oh God, that it would indeed accomplish much in the, in the lives of your people this day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. With this, we come to the close of uh, what has been three sermons on Verses 8 through 15, where we've been considering, as Robert Haldane uh, describes it, the character of Paul's ministry. And personally, thus far, I found the study uh, to be highly edifying, both from the standpoint of the ministry, uh, but also from that of the church in general. For we have here, as I've said, both uh, Paul's viewpoint on the ministry, but also his viewpoint on the church, which is to say uh, his ecclesiology. And that's obviously something that interests us all. What is a scriptural view of the church? If Paul was writing to the church for the benefit of the church, what is his view of the church? And how did he view his own relationship to the church as a minister of God? And this is something uh, I've been describing uh, as, uh, as something we find at the beginning of Romans before we ever come to this mighty discussion on justification, which we'll begin next time. Last time... I stress how Paul was a man of prayer and that in his prayers, his great interest was not surprisingly that of the church. He was like Christ, an intercessor who always prayed for the well-being of the church. And then we saw that what he prayed for the church and what he desired to do for her in his preaching and his letters was to strengthen the church or to edify His desire was that she might be established, verse 11. And finally, we saw in verse 12 how he hoped to join in this edifying experience. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. So the minister, along with the people. And uh, he goes on with that thought in uh, the present verses. We once again uh, see on display his heart for the church. He's, des- he's expressing his desire to come to them and to preach to them. Again, his desire to be with the people. The letter wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to minister, as it were, from a distance. And what he's saying here is in essence this. Let no man say that his failure to come to them 
was a result of any failure on his part or lack of interest in doing so. Quite the contrary, he says. This was something he deeply wished to do. It was often on his mind, something he often planned to do, only he was providentially hindered every time. As of yet, God had not allowed him to go to Rome. Well, I don't want you to be unaware of this, Paul is saying. I want you to know how much and how eager I have been to preach the gospel even to you who are in Rome. And in this statement, these three verses, verses 13 through 15, we are again, as we have with the prior verses, able to discern certain lines of thought which reveal Paul's view of the ministry and of the church. We get a glimpse once more into what drove this man and made him such an effective vessel in propagating the church or propagating the gospel, excuse me, and uh, and building the church through the preaching in so many places. And when we put it like that, uh, we would also have to say that these points cannot and must not be limited to Paul himself. Each of them must be true to some extent of all true preachers or else they're bound to fail. And and, uh, we could even say uh, to a lesser extent of everyone who is a Christian and makes up the church. And the first thing we see is that Paul wanted to be with the people and to preach to them. You might be surprised that I'm going to make a whole point out of that in the sermon, but I am. And I hope by the time I'm done with this point, you'll understand why. He wanted to be with the people and he wanted to preach to them. What he is expressing in these three verses is a strong desire which existed in his heart. It was something he desired to do, even though as we'll later see as the third point, he felt constrained to do it. He had to do it. He was bound to do it. Well, Let no man say that this sense of constraint bent his will uh, against his will. Bending his will in a direction he did not wish to go. That is not how we should understand uh, the sense in which he was a debtor and constrained to preach the gospel. Not in the least. God, in bending his will, in making Paul a debtor to the, uh, the barbarian and the Greek, made the human will conform to the divine, much as we experience in conversion. He changes our will. He makes our will to align with his. And so the point is that this is something Paul deeply wanted. There was no need to twist his arm. Preaching to Christians everywhere is what he always wanted. And that included the Romans. There was no lack of desire to be with them, even though he had as yet been unable to do so. What I'm saying is that Paul was a man who loved to preach. God had called him and gifted him, and he loved to exercise his gift. Now, why was this? There are several reasons for this. One was that he loved the gospel. As he'll go on to say in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel was something that Paul loved to talk about. He loved to tell others about. He loved to preach. It was the thing you might say, in light of what he says in verse 16, that he was most proud of. To say, I'm not ashamed of, is just another way of saying, I'm very proud of. And we're always prone to speak gladly about the things we're most proud of. Paul loved to speak of the gospel. It wasn't something you had to twist his arm to do. He was always looking for opportunities to do so. Another reason was that he loved people. 
and he hated to see them perish in their sins like the Savior's lament in Matthew 23. Such was the same thing that was found in Paul's heart. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, why will you perish? Paul wanted to see men saved. He wanted men to be happy in Jesus. And he knew that there was no way for this to happen until they repented and believed the gospel. And so he preached to them. Again, it was something he wanted to do. But especially, as we saw last time, his preaching was meant for Christians. And that is the thing he wanted most. He took particular delight in this, in coming to churches where people were already converted and then preaching the gospel to them for their edification and strengthening. And so I'm saying this is what he wanted to do, and he had good reasons to want to do it. So strong was his desire, he would do it free of charge. And indeed, he often did, as he expressed in Corinthians. And it was well that the people knew this. When he says, I don't want you to be unaware, that's the first thing he says in verse 13. He's stressing something that he wishes them to know about him. He wants them to know how he feels about them. Robert Haldane, it is of importance that believers should know the love entertained for them by the servants of God. So that's what Paul is expressing here. His deep desire for them and his desire to preach to them. But on the other side, and I think this especially as a way of underscoring the importance of this point. This has a way of exposing certain false preachers or at least certain false tendencies in the ministry. It tells us what should be true of every minister and what motivation should drive him to preach. There is, of course, this danger in the ministry that the minister, perhaps not at first, but eventually should simply come to church on Sunday and preach a sermon simply because that is his job. The church is paying him to do this, and this is what he has become accustomed to doing. This is what we call professionalism in the ministry. He is a man like everyone else, collecting a paycheck, doing his job because that's his job. And if you were to ask him why it is he stands in the pulpit and preaches, the next sermon, his answer would be, well, that's the next thing to do. Formalism is another word for it, or man-pleasing, which is, of course, possible not only in the ministry, but in every other profession. But it's especially disastrous in the ministry. And what I'm saying is that these are not things that you would find in Paul. All of this is wrong because it misses the true motivation of the true preacher. And if a man goes long in this direction, his ministry will become totally devoid of true spiritual power. And so here is a point for the preacher to apply to himself, and you might even say for the people to apply to him. Why am I doing this? Why do I prepare these sermons and stand in the pulpit week in and week out and preach to the people? This is something that he he had better have a, a good answer to. A minister who doesn't know why he preaches is not very likely to preach like Paul did in an edifying manner, which is apt to strengthen the churches. The question is simply, does he want to do it? Is he actually motivated in the ways and for the reasons I outlined earlier to preach? Because he loves the gospel, because he loves the people, because he wants to see the church strengthened. Or is he just collecting A paycheck. Again, if you compare this passage with 1 Corinthians 9, as I did earlier, the point will stand out even more strongly. Or let me illustrate this point in another way. I remember when I was in seminary, 
I knew men who were pursuing the ministry not because of a burning desire, not because they deeply wanted to be ministers, because God, in fact, was calling them to be ministers, but simply because they didn't know what else to do with their lives. It seems strange to put it that way, but that is actually what they were doing. I don't know what else to do, so maybe I'll go to seminary, maybe I'll be a minister. I doubt you'd be surprised to discover that such men seemingly always failed to become ministers. But you see, the temptation is to treat the ministry like other professions. He doesn't know what to do, so why not this? Perhaps I can make my living as a minister. But that wasn't why Paul preached. It wasn't a job to him. At times he preached again, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 9, at nothing. And he made it a point to preach for nothing. Just to prove why it was he preached. And so the point is here, at least the first point, at a bare minimum, a man must have a desire to preach or else why is he preaching? He doesn't just preach because that's his job description and how he collects his paycheck. Again, I'm saying that's the temptation. That's the pitfall. But you also realize that in certain cases that may not be true. But still he preaches because God has called him to preach and because this is how the church is strengthened. And so for those reasons, he wants to do it. It's the thing he desires most to do. This is, again, as I'm saying, a very important test of the ministry. It's very useful to see Paul's heart on display for the church. Well, that's the first point. But the second point in this, he was seeking fruit. He says, I want you to know, or I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you, that I might have some fruit among you. So, again, this further reveals his reason for wanting to come to them and to preach to them. It certainly wasn't to receive applause and praise from man. We know no such thing could be found in Paul's heart. And that if it was, his ministry must be deemed a dismal failure. More often than not, Paul was rejected where he went rather than received and applauded. But here we see what motivated him to come to them and to preach to them. It was, as he says, that he might have some fruit among them. And that statement must go together with what he said in verse 11. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you might be established or strengthened or made firm. In many ways, uh, that is the same statement in different words or the same truth expressed differently. In looking for fruit, verse uh, let's see, verse 13 He's saying, I want to see that you are progressing in the gospel. I want to see when I come to you that you're bearing fruit, that you're fruitful Christians. And so he says metaphorically that he will come to them and he will gather fruit. And of course, in coming to them, his ministry would also provide the stimulus for further fruit bearing. So again, we find the apostle bearing his heart and revealing the reason he's so eager to preach. He's looking not merely for conversion, as we saw last time, but for fruit among Christians, fruitful Christians in the churches whom he he hoped to come and to preach to. He wanted to see them growing and he wanted to help them to grow all to the glory of God. I'm coming in search of fruit. That's what Paul is saying. And again, we can pause here and realize that what he is describing 
is something that we might benefit from and learn from ourselves. Namely, the true picture of the relationship between the true minister and the church. The minister is not there to entertain them or to collect a check. The reason the minister is there preaching to them is to help them as Christians to grow, to bear fruit, to realize their true purpose in this world. And again, that is to bear fruit to the glory of God. Jesus says as much in John chapter 15. Uh, you know that is an extended treatment on the whole subject of fruit bearing. But just listen to this one verse. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that wherever that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. Christ's will for the church is to find fruitful Christians and Christians who are ever increasing in fruit bearing. You remember, uh, for instance, the parable of the sower when the so when the seed goes out and it finds the good soil. What happens? It bears fruit. And so that's Christ's will for the church. And the minister is there to help them to see this and to realize their true purpose in the world. What it is that Christ wants for Christians now that they're converted. Again, that they're growing, not that they're stagnant. Let me try to make this uh, point another way. The second point from the standpoint once more of the minister and the ministry you think of what Paul is saying, I'm hoping to come to you that I might, uh, how does he put it exactly, that I might have some fruit among you. That I might come and find that you're fruitful and gather that fruit and then help you to bear more fruit. He is again revealing his heart. He is saying, this is the thing that would most encourage me. The thing that would most establish me as a Christian. Seeing your faith at work bearing fruit. The thing that is most apt to bolster and encourage and motivate the minister. Seeing that the church is bearing fruit under his ministry. Or to put the point in reverse. The same truth in reverse. There's nothing that so dejects the minister. And makes him question whether he can go on in the ministry. Like the absence of fruit among the people. He goes out. He looks for fruit. But he finds none. And so he asks himself. What is he doing? Why is he there? If his ministry is not bearing fruit among the people, why go on? It will make him question seriously whether he even wants to do it anymore. The first point. But you see, again, the opposite is also true. Nothing so lifts and delights and motivates the preacher to go on and to want to go on than to see the teaching being received and that God is blessing it. And that the people are taking it to heart and so bearing fruit. Some 30, another 60, and yet another 100. But all together in their own way, prospering under the preaching of the gospel. And so it's in that sense that Paul says, I want to come to you that I might have some fruit among you. Just as I've had among the other churches I've gone to and preached to and written to. And that is, I'm saying again, what is and ought to be found in the heart Of every minister. The thing he is looking for most. And the thing that encourages his faith most. But then the third point is. I think the real burden of these verses. And that is Paul's language of being a debtor. He says it in verse 14. I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians. Both to wise and unwise. 
And because of this, he concludes verse 15. So as as much as in me is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. That is to say, because I'm a debtor. Well, what is he saying by this when he says, I am a debtor? He is expressing his sense of constraint, which I referred to earlier. He's doing something, you might say, that he's not free not to do. Just as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. I won't read all the verses again, but just listen to this verse. He says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. That's a favorite verse of many ministers. Woe is me, he says. It is not I who chose to do this. It was God who enlisted me and who compels me now to do it. And if I refuse, Paul says, then an awful woe falls upon me, which I cannot escape. In that sense, he says, what credit is due to me if I discharge my duty? Do I deserve anything? And do I have the right to boast? No, I do not. None whatsoever. He's only doing what he has to do, what he's bound to do. In that sense, it was, he says, again, in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 9, that it was against his will. Not in the sense that he didn't want to do it. I'm not overturning the first point. We've already seen that he did want to do it. But notice the order. It wasn't he who said, I decided to be a minister. He's saying, God is the one who made me a minister, and now I want to do it. It's very different than the man who goes to seminary and says, well, I think I want to be a minister. You see, he inverts the order. Paul didn't choose to be a minister. It was against his will. God bound him to do it. And it was out of this that he began to discover a sense in his heart that he did want to do it. And so it was in this sense that he was discharging a debt, Paul says. He is fulfilling an obligation that he was bound to fulfill. Divine necessity compels him to this task. Well, what was the task? What was the debt that he owed, not to God, uh, but to the Greek and to the barbarian, though I suppose you could say he owed it to God as well. But what he's actually saying here is that he is a debtor to the Greek and he's a debtor to the barbarian. Well, in what sense? What was the debt? The debt, as you can surely guess, was to preach the gospel to them. And so he not only says what he says in verse 15, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel even to you who are in Rome, which included the Greek and the barbarian, the wise and the unwise, but also what he says in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. You see, what Paul is actually saying is that until... He preached to both Jews and Greeks and barbarians and foolish and wise alike. He's still a debtor and he must go on until he's paid the last penny, which is to say until God at last releases him from his debt. But until that time, he must preach the gospel to all alike. And there's two things that we can notice here about what he's saying in describing his ministry as that of being a debtor. The first thing we might notice is that this way of looking at it has a way of explaining the narrow scope of his ministry. The discharging of this debt required that he helped all he possibly could, but only by this single means. 
He wasn't trying to help everybody in any way possible, but only in one single way, which was by preaching the gospel to them. Incredibly narrow, this debt made his ministry. And so his message was not, as we discover, meant for the natural man, only for spiritual persons, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. His message did not appeal to anyone but to Christians or those who were in the process of becoming Christians. To everyone else, his words appeared as foolishness. And if you were to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you would see that's actually what he calls them. To the unbelieving, the preaching of the gospel is foolishness. But he isn't preaching to them. He's preaching to those who are being saved. The discharging of this debt was meant only to gather and equip the elect for the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel. And so, as I say, it was narrow in that sense. Or perhaps you could say, in terms of the language later on in Romans chapter 9, his interest was in the true spiritual seed of Abraham, the elect. But at the same time, and this is more, uh, this is more the emphasis here, I think we could say, He is describing the breadth of his ministry. What Paul was actually saying was that he could preach to anyone. It didn't matter who he was or what his background was. Paul is saying that he had something to say to that person. His message and his ministry were not confined to one class of of people. And that's not because of what Paul was. That's because of what the gospel is. The gospel is a message for everyone, Paul is saying. Not in the sense that all will be saved by it, but in the sense that all who believe will. Again, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Again, notice the breadth of his ministry. And this is something that becomes a major emphasis of uh, the book of Romans as Paul is unfolding the gospel for us, namely the broad appeal of the gospel, the abolishing of old distinctions. Now, the phrase is actually the opposite. Uh, Paul saying there is no distinction. You see, the Old Testament said under the law, there is distinction. Now we find in the preaching of the gospel, there is No distinction. Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. I actually have a list of verses I might have read, but let me just read this one. But don't think he waits until chapter 10 to say something like this. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him, he will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that is because, as Paul establishes uh, early on in the letter, chapters 1 through 3, as we'll soon see, that all need the gospel equally. There is no man who needs the gospel more or less because of who he is. And both the Gentiles and the Jews were guilty of this error equally. The Gentiles imagined they had the advantage, as so too did the Jew. But Paul is telling them both. That neither had any advantage. They both stand equally in need of this gospel he has to preach to them. And so the true preacher, like Paul, is able to give it to all equally. He doesn't require a specialized method or a specialized message for certain people. He has a message he can take to anyone, anywhere. Indeed, it is just when we seek to do this 
to create specialized ministries, which of course requires specialized training for certain groups, that we have ceased, if we understand this point, that we've ceased to preach the gospel truly. The gospel does not make these distinctions. It does not ask you first whether you are a Jew or a Greek or a child or an adult or so on. It does not assess your level of intellect before it feels it can make its appeal. Now, I know ministers who do that all the time. But that's only because they don't know what the gospel is nor how to preach it. The gospel is a message for all men. That's what Paul is saying here in verses 14 through 16. And so that message is exactly the same for all. You don't have one type of message for the barbarian and another for the Greek. Or one for the foolish and one for the wise. And yet, if you listen to most preaching today, you would think that the gospel as it is preached is meant only for the foolish. There's no intellect left today in preaching. Oh yes, but to the more intellectual type of preacher, he also needs to hear his ministry is meant for the foolish. In the face of such things, you understand why Paul says... Who is sufficient for such a charge? Or you can understand a preacher such as myself might ask, how can any accomplish this broad appeal to all alike equally? And there's only one answer. Obviously, you can guess it is by preaching the gospel, only by preaching the gospel and preaching the gospel as Paul does, not in a specialized way, but in the broadest possible way. By making this universal appeal, by dealing with men in terms of what they share in common, all together alike, standing condemned by the law. There is none righteous, no, not one, he'll go on to say in chapter 3. Yes, but at the same time, there is none who can't be saved by this gospel. It will be to him salvation if he has faith. And faith is all that he needs. He doesn't need these other things. By a simple faith in the Savior, any man can be saved. But this, uh, this truth that I'm stressing is the very thing that we undercut when we try to make our message appeal to only one type or one class. Common today, for instance, is a ministry that appeals only to women. And so you don't find many men today in the churches. Or in some cases, uh, a ministry that appeals to men mostly. Well, again, here is the test. Is there this broad appeal? Do all alike have the sense that there is something in it for them, whatever they are or whatever their background or whatever their education? I can preach to the barbarian. I can preach to the Greek. I can preach to the wise. And I can preach to the foolish and all alike equally. I can bring the same exact message to them all. I don't have to adjust it in the slightest. You see how Paul refuses, for instance, to be wise according to the flesh. Again, if you read 1 Corinthians 2, that's what he's stressing. And he's saying that those who are in it for the philosophy, who want merely to have their intellects delighted under the preaching, how disappointed they will be and how disappointed they were by Paul. Yet at the same time, look at how much intellect he demands of the unwise. There is no accommodation at all to either class or type. 
He preaches to the wise and the unwise alike equally. He preaches the same message in the same way to all. Because the gospel he preaches abolishes these very distinctions and places all men alike in the same category. Indeed, there's only one distinction the gospel recognizes. And that is, as Paul will later say in Romans chapter 5, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Or to put it another way, are you in the flesh or in the spirit? Romans chapter 8. Or to put it even simpler than that, in terms of what he's saying in Romans chapter 1, are you a Christian or not? It's the only interest of the preacher in preaching the gospel. Are you a Christian or not? If the gospel is the power of God to all who believe for salvation, verse 16, the question is simply, have you believed? Have you believed the gospel? That, beloved, is the only distinction that matters from the standpoint of preaching the gospel. Now, that is not to say, as a kind of false inference that many are making today, that the distinctions that I am describing are obliterated entirely. Under the preaching of the gospel, and Paul surely recognized this, the Jew is still a Jew. The woman is still a woman. The wise man is still a wise man, and so on. The gospel doesn't abolish nationality or gender or intellect. The same apostle who said uh, there is no distinction could also say in the same book or the same letter, chapter nine, verses one through three. I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. You see how Paul felt about his fellow Jews, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, he says. But the point is not that these things are abolished now that Christ has come or that they cease to exist in any meaningful way. If that were true, it's difficult to understand what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter nine. Or when he says, for instance, I do not permit permit a woman to teach or he tells children, obey your parents. But the point is that they do not matter from the standpoint of salvation. And because that is true, these things have no bearing on one's preaching of the message of salvation. Let me make another qualification. That doesn't mean the preacher won't make certain adjustments depending on who his audience is. Again, you see in Romans, for instance, that Paul is one thing to say to the Jew Chapter 3, chapters 2 and 3, and another to the Gentile, chapter 1. But you see, he's preaching to them together. And he was able to preach to them all alike and bring them to the same point. It was not a different message for each, nor was it a different preacher. His broad appeal was found in his radical commitment to preaching the gospel. And so, as I say, he could preach to all alike equally. The Jew, the Greek, it didn't matter. And so here again, we might take this truth and think of our own relationship to the world in light of it. And I would say there's an important lesson here for us to learn ourselves. And it is that we as Christians, and especially as a church, are obliged to give the gospel to anyone at all who's willing to receive it. We do not adjust it to make it more palatable depending on who the person may be. We do not have... One gospel for women and another gospel for a black man 
and then one for a white man, and then one for the educated and another for the uneducated, one for the child, one for the adults. Do you see how the church is doing that very thing today? It's bringing back all the distinctions, specialized ministries for specialized groups. You could find no such thing in Paul's ministry, in his heart and in the churches he was seeking to establish. And so to that I say this. Let it be seen and let it be known that our assumption is that all men alike equally stand in need of this same gospel. And that all alike equally are offended by it, if they are, for the same reason. It isn't because of all these distinctions I just made. It is for the single reason. It is because the gospel tells everyone alike equally that they are sinners and that they are therefore guilty and they stand under condemnation and await the awful wrath of God and an eternity in hell. That's the real offense. Men do not like to be told that they are sinners. And anyone who does not rejoice to discover this, that he is a sinner, And that God is willing to pardon him freely by his grace through the blood of Jesus Christ is not fit to receive the kingdom of God nor to enjoy the fellowship of the saints in the church. I don't care what else is true about him. He will be damned forever and lost in the abyss of eternity. It is only the man, whoever he is, who has faith, who can be saved. And oh, that it might be clear that we really do believe that. That we as Christians and as a church are a debtor to all equally alike to give them this gospel, the same gospel for all. And that we really are ready to do so. Just as Paul says, so as as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes For the Jew first and also for the Greek. Amen. And let us now come to the table.